Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting November 13, 2015, we preview the International Climate Change Conference starting in Paris this month, as highlighted in the WPJ Fall Issue Conversation with Ségolène Royal, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, under the headline Feeding the World. We'll also point out other top features in the fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, mission creep in Syria, that's not so much an American concern at this point as it is a Russian one. U.S. officials tell World Policy that there are now some 4,000 Russians in Syria. This as the Kremlin continues its campaign to prop up Bashar al-Assad, but with the growing belief but not definitive proof that a Russian passenger jet was bombed out of the sky, perhaps by the Islamic State or an affiliate of the terror group. Those officials wonder if Moscow will continue to ratchet up its presence in the Middle East or take a more cautious position. No surprise that this week's White House visit by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was strained. It was his first meeting with President Obama since the Iran nuclear deal went into effect. And while the two leaders disagree on that, they spoke of the broader U.S.-Israeli relationship, which both emphasize remains sacrosanct. Obama reiterated, as he always has, that America will not allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Netanyahu, for his part, knows that he will outlast the president and is already looking to his successor. And something else that looks increasingly likely to outlast the president is the prison at the U.S. Navy base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Obama Obama came into office way back in 2009, promising to close Gitmo, the prison, not the base itself, in one year. The White House this week repeated its long-standing criticism of Republicans who have blocked the White House, saying they don't want Guantanamo's inmates. There are 112 there now imprisoned on American soil. The White House points out that U.S. prisons already hold the likes of Zakarias Musawi, the so-called 20th hijacker from 9-11. The administration points out that in a time of budget constraints, the prison at Guantanamo costs taxpayers millions while providing terrorists overseas a recruiting tool. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Stop eating Nutella, for example, because it has palm oil. But is so good. Well, we have to stop, because palm oil has replaced trees. You could ruin a company saying you shouldn't eat Nutella. Well, they should use other raw materials. Always strong in her opinions, Ségolène Royal is no stranger to controversy. But the one-time classmate and longtime domestic partner of French President François Hollande appointed by him as France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, staged a quick retreat by tweet after the June TV appearance in which she indicted the widely popular Italian-made hazelnut and cocoa spread called Nutella. Quote, a thousand times sorry, Royale wrote on Twitter later that same day. But she continues to voice concern about palm oil, 
In fact, it came up in a conversation about climate, environment, and food supply that Royale had with World Policy Journal Editor Emeritus David Andelman, featured in the fall 2015 food fight issue under the headline Feeding the World. And as Royale prefers to do her interviews only in French, David Andelman joins us now to say more about all the ground they covered. Welcome to World Policy on Air, boss. Uh, Thanks for having me. The subject and timing of your conversation relate to a major United Nations conference Royale will help host in Paris uh, beginning this month. Who's coming and what's the agenda? Well, it's the largest gathering of global leaders in the history of our planet, really. 190 nations and their leaders are going to be assembling in Paris at the end of November, uh, November 30th, actually, for two weeks, um, which most hope will pave the way towards saving the planet from humanity. Um, the, the next stage passed the Kyoto Conference. It, it just didn't do enough, the Kyoto Conference some years ago, to slow global warming slow the buildup of greenhouse gases, halt the melting of glaciers, the horrific climate changes that are wreaking havoc everywhere from Asia to much of the U.S. The, the only promise, they only promise to get worse. And there'll be small nations, tiny nations like uh, Kiribati in Paris that risk disappearing entirely between, beneath the rising oceans. They're right down at sea level. And they'll be leading developing countries that are desperate for their bite of the pie. Some developing countries have quietly let it be known that they're especially irritated by the heavy pressure from much of the developed world during this whole process leading up to the Paris conference, which is called COP21, to change a course that led to their prosperity and advancement. Now suddenly they want the rules changed, the developing, the developed countries want the rules changed. Uh, the challenge will be to thread the needle between what would appear to be somewhat antithetical views between uh, the haves and the have-nots and the, the wannabes. And remind us of Royale's background and long connection with these issues. Well, Royale is above all a consummate politician and and every inch a socialist. Um, She was the first woman ever to become a candidate for president on a major party ticket in France. She lost to Nicolas Sarkozy, who was then in turn defeated by Hollande, um, her successor as socialist leader and president of France. And as you quite well mentioned, uh, her longtime companion, they had four children together, by the way. But today, Hollande has the lowest poll ratings of any French president in modern times. He's counting on the huge success of this environmental conference to boost him to re-election in 2017. That's the next time the uh, presidency comes up for uh, a vote in, in France. Royale, who's not only Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, but a top advisor in the Elysee Presidential Palace, is doing her level best to make this a huge success for herself, of course, as well as Hollande, since if it is a success, success for him, uh, it will by definition be a success for her. And also uh, the Foreign Minister, Laurent Fabius, who is nominally uh, the person who will chair the conference, although most of the real grunt work down in the uh, engine room is being done by uh, Ségolène Royale's ministry. You know, when I visited her offices in Paris in the uh, huge courtyard of the ministerial building on the Boulevard Saint-Germain uh, back in September, there's already a huge inflatable glow of the world labeled a space for climate, and, and that's where um, they're hoping uh, uh, everything will begin to emanate from. How does Royale describe the link between climate change and the world's ability to feed an ever-growing population? Well, food's been at the top of Royale's agenda from from her first um, day in office when 
um, you know, it's really, it's, it's kind of interesting. Let me tell you some of the things that she actually told me about that in the interview. She said, that's the essential problem, relationship between the planet's capacity to produce food and to feed its inhabitants. Nine billion, ten billion people by the end of the century, and frankly, I think that's fairly optimistic. I think we could hit nine or ten billion by the middle of the century. We aren't saving the planet, she said, for the planet's sake. Earth could save itself without human beings. It doesn't need us. And often this error is made. We save the planet for its relationship with human beings, and that's not the same at all. How can human beings on this planet live in dignity? The question of climate change is directly related to the question of human dignity. So um, she talked about, for instance, the Bonn text. That's a uh, text that was discussed in Bonn, um, the preparatory conference in in June. And that document set the stage for the big global conference that's coming up. Um, uh, And what she said was is that um, we have to raise food production by 70% between now and 2050 just to feed 9 billion people, let alone the 10 or 11 that may ultimately be on this planet. Global warming creates uncertainty that weighs heavily on agriculture and the means of subsistence for vulnerable populations. So that's why she really has made this tie between these two that's very important. And how does she think this Paris conference can change the minds and and the policies of countries not as fully committed as she would like to reducing carbon emissions and other human control factors that are linked to climate change, including the United States? Well, it's interesting because she invoked President Obama, and she said um, she's persuaded that Obama is convinced and involved in the whole process. She also said that she's met members of Congress. She was um, she was actually uh, in the U.S. when when we met. We met at the um, French consulate in in New York, um, and then she was uh, she was down in Washington as well on this last visit. And she's been here a number of times. So she said she met members of Congress, and she said especially the climate group who are very involved and very convinced. She said I think certain American states are accelerating the energy transition more rapidly than the country as a whole. And she said that's true in many countries. And then she she invoked um, the, the situation in France where um, uh, she said in, in uh, as the, she, she's also, by the way, the, the sort of the mayor of a, of a region of France as well as being a um, uh, minister. And she said she installed principles of energy transition 10 years ago there. Then the global market for renewable energy and energy performance is solvent and even profitable. But she said it remains a fight. We still see whole skyscrapers that stay lit all night in New York and in France and in Europe. That kind of change took time to incorporate. And now she said there are rules for shutting off office lights at night and for lowering the temperature on buildings in France. So all of that has to be um, sort of implanted in, in other countries. And she's confident, even in the United States, that it's possible because there is a will to do this. How much commitment to the problem does she see in giant China, whose polluted skies and other environmental problems have become infamous, as World Policy Journal and this program have reported? Well, she said, uh, she pointed out that the Chinese premier was recently in Paris and and had a long talk with Hollande and with herself, and that he himself also seems uh, quite committed to all of this. Um, And and there are reasons for this. She said they, they chose this moment to make a trip to present their national commitment for climate control supporting the idea in Paris. And she said that's very important. She said, look, China has come to a realization that they risk drowning 
or suffocating in their own pollution. So if other nations, rival nations of China, are committed to making the kinds of commitments the Chinese see as essential to holding down pollution, especially reducing their carbon footprint, they could very well be prepared to make a comparable commitment. And she's confident that that, she's confident that, that will come out uh, after the Paris Agreement. China does not want to be alone in the world as being labeled as the principal bad guy and polluter. They want to do the right thing, or at least appear to do the right thing. Now, again, there's a big slip between the cup and the lip. There's a big slip between making commitments like this and following through on them, especially in a country as diverse and, and in some respects, out of control uh, as China, especially in its vast interior that is still very tied to carbon um, emissions. Interestingly, she also calls tiny communist Cuba a crucial country. How so? Well, what she said, she, she pointed out that Cuba was formally aligned with countries that were hostile to action against climate change, and they passed over, as she put it, to the right side of history. <laughs> um, but um, she said it's, it's, it's a crucial country because it's an island. It's an island country. <clears throat> and remember, a lot of these islands are really facing very serious problems because they are so close to sea level, and rising sea level threatens all of them, sometimes their very existence. So she said they held a, a summit in, in the Caribbean, um, the, uh, the leading up to this um, a global summit coming up in Paris. And she said it was very important that Cuba was there. Island countries are directly threatened by this rising level. And Cuba seemed to be, since it's on the right side, it's embracing this concept now. Um, it's a good model for quite a number of other island countries like it. In terms of confidence does she have in the UN Food and Agricultural Organization to provide pressure as well as essential monitoring? Well, the FAO, that's, that's also a difficult uh, question for her because, and, and uh, frankly for me as well, look, the FAO is part of the United Nations, and Ban Ki-moon is really the principal motive force behind this entire conference. It's really a UN conference. The UN is providing all of the organizational backup. They're accrediting the press who will be there in, in droves. Um, they're accrediting all of the uh, diplomatic representatives and so on. So uh, while France may be playing host, it's Ban Ki-moon who really is the motive force, and Ban Ki-moon is the U.N. and the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, is a U.N. organization. So what, um, uh, but, but what, she, what uh, Segalin Royale told me was that the FAO calculates that 30% of deforestation, for instance, in Indonesia, is due to palm oil. And we'll talk about palm oil, I hope, in a little bit um, but she said that, um, um, you know, the FAO is a, is a very good monitoring uh, organization. And he said, she said courageous decisions have to be taken at the level of the FAO because it's not possible to let industrial lobbies ravage entire countries and populations. And basically the FAO can hold people's feet to the fire. They're the ones that are looking objectively at the numbers, at how programs are operated, how they function, and they have the ability to continue doing that long after this conference uh, and, and its delegates go home. Well, as you wish, let's get back to the palm oil controversy, if not specifically to Nutella, which claims that its sources do not have continuing environmental effects. What does she have to say about that and about the environmental impact of agriculture more generally? 
Well, Nutella was tough for her. <laughs> it's virtually a staple of the French diet, <clears throat> excuse me, especially for French school children. I remember back to the uh, 1980s when I was first there, and, and uh, my, my son, who was now in his 30s, was in, in, in grade school, and Nutella was the, um, was the little snack, the goûter, they called it, um, um, a little taste that uh, they had when they came home from school every day. So um, it, it's, it's a staple of the French diet, and, and one of its principal components is palm oil. Uh, it's a, it's sort of a cocoa hazelnut spread, as you noted at the beginning. But Segal and Royale and, and many other ecologists are worried about rampant deforestation of palm oil plantations, and 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 that's a real concern. So, as I mentioned, the FAO calculates that 30 percent of deforestation in Indonesia is due to palm oil, 80 percent in Malaysia. And as she said to me, when you see aerial photos of an island like Borneo, you can see that it's been totally ravaged by palm oil. Now, a certain number of producers say that there are sustainable methods to produce palm oil, but this remains very marginal. So we must encourage new practices, find new raw materials for the confectionery industry, but it's not only in sweets that palm oil is found, it's found in many other food products. And, of course, it's not only uh, palm oil. There are a whole lot of other products like that that are, that are very critical in, in, um, and, and have serious environmental impact. What does she say about experiments as featured in the current World Policy Journal to nurture or even create more varieties of basic crops that can survive if climate change can't be reversed or at least restrained? Well, she's very high on experimental agriculture, and um, and the French are very high on that, um, especially, and she cited some experiments uh, by her close friend, the Prince uh, Louis-Albert de Broglie, the uh, gardener prince, uh, who's also in, in this issue of our magazine. He has 650 varieties of tomatoes he grows on his experimental farm in the Loire Valley, which is really quite extraordinary. So she said it's, it's quite clear that agroecology, green agriculture, um, is vital to the whole climate change equation. She said we need species that are more drought resistant but without genetic manipulation. We have to reinvent natural treatments for agricultural production. Uh, this also creates jobs and, and work for research institutions um, and institutes. It's very important. So, so generally, um, you know, it's interesting because I was down to the, um, the Prince de Broglie's um, the terrain in, in the Loire Valley, his chateau, and, and not only does he grow these tomatoes there, but he has a, um, a whole um, ecological farm. He's trying to figure out just how much work is needed to go into producing a certain number of calories on a farm like this and how efficiently it can be made. This is small-scale agricultural farming, which is a big contrast to the huge um, industrial farms that, that uh, populate much of the American Midwest and, and even parts of large parts of, of Europe, including France. So uh, those are very important to understand, this, this need for small-scale farming that can be done more ecologically and can really be very much more environmentally sensitive, yet at the same time economically viable as well. Related to that, she talks about producing more crops in urban spaces so they won't have to be transported over such long distances, get lost along the way. But she also talks about restraining the tide of people from rural areas to urban centers. Talk about that. 
Yep, the all that is very important. Um, what she said is we have to not only slow down but set off a reverse movement. Not only not only hold off on on uh, sort of denuding the countryside of people and bulking up the cities. We have to actually reverse that. We have to get people out of the cities and back to the farms. She said there's just too much urban concentration. Urban concentration has high costs in terms of transport, pollution, food, uh, a whole lot of other issues like that. We have to ask the question of why people are leaving their villages. They're leaving because there's not access to services. There are no jobs there. And, and uh, other than subsistence farming, there's no real way for a lot of these people in the rural, traditional rural areas to make a living. So she said in terms of work, people want to live nearby, but in an agreeable location with a garden and a school as well. Urban planners must begin to consider carefully the nature of space and how effectively it works for the people who live in them. And she said you can see more and more people going back to mid-sized towns. Um, and when you ask them where the best standards of living are, the answer is in mid-sized towns. So that should really be the model for the future. Now, at the same time, she also talked about how um, in, in some places um, uh, there actually are many, many farms actually beginning in in cities, and there are some, for instance, skyscrapers that are being designed with, with micro-farms at the top of them. She said, Dollar, this is, is a good idea. It's, it's not a long-term solution, but it is a, a finite pinpoint prob- uh, solution to a pinpoint problem. The main issue, though, is getting people back to the countryside, and that's vital. You mentioned producing more food for a growing population. To what degree does she see the world's capacity to feed itself affected by the loss and waste of food that we already produce and plans to reverse that? That was another topic in the current WPJ fall issue. It, it, it is. A waste, a waste of food, food waste is just a, a horrible uh, issue. Um, and she said it can't fail. We can't fail in all of this in that respect. Um, and, and the reason we can't fail is that there's, there's already 30% waste in food production with new agricultural technologies and work on the balance of soils on the t- entire production cycle. That's one way we can meet this need to feed 9 billion or 10 or 11 billion people by mid-century. But there, there has to be a, a, a curb on that. There has to be a cut down that. And, and part of that also is the whole issue of more efficient transportation from the countryside, from the farms, into the cities, or placing the people closer to where the crops and agriculture is being produced, where the food is being produced, because that cuts down on waste and destruction en route and spoilage as well in storage facilities. So those are, those are some very, those are, those are critical issues really as well. She talked about, quote, four poles of intervention, unquote, against climate change. Tell us more about that and who she sees as involved in the process. Well, the, the four poles are, are <laughs> they're interesting. Um, uh, she, she cites them as, as an important um, touchstone going forward. So she said, each country, poll one, each company, poll two, each territory, poll three, and each citizen, poll four, all must be part of this whole thrust towards um, climate control, climate control of the, of the environment, uh, above all, carbon control, carbon emission control, and so on. She said, and she pointed out at the Paris conference there are going to be a host of side events. So while there will be maybe, um, you know, um, say delegates from 190 countries, diplomatic delegates, and there'll be journalists and so on, there'll also be a host of side events. For instance, there's going to be a summit of cities that will group a thousand cities around the world, all of whom will be sending representatives to Paris. Um, and, and grouping them with the NGOs. 
Uh, there'll be nine focus groups in the UN of the UN: women, youths, corporations, unions, NGOs from every part of the world. Um, each of those polls will put it, put it, be put into a network that must bring solutions of their own. They will also, each of them, be producing documents for solutions. Um, and also, she said, they have to launch a global debate. That will be one of the other key goals of the, the, um, the December conference in Paris. A global debate, meaning uh, by Internet, uh, mobilizing 10,000 people around the world in at least 60 countries. So there are going to be sites in every country engaging citizens everywhere in this process. It's not simply going to be um, a large number of diplomats putting their signatures to a document that may or may not be followed in the future. It must be a grassroots level because it's the people in so many countries that elect the officials who will decide whether or not to implement this agreement. If you elect the right kinds of officials, you'll have the right kind of an agreement that's ultimately implemented. Well, as you noted, she's an extraordinarily practical politician, but she seemed quite emotional when you asked her about the consequences if all the efforts that she envisions fail. Oh, there's no doubt about that. She said, uh, I said to her, how is this ever going to be possible? I said, what kind of hope do you have for this? And she said, and I quote her, these are great hopes. It is a great chance for the future of our planet. Now we must build a structure on which we can act. She's, she's a very practical politician as well as being an emotional one. So she understands how to con connect with people, how to identify with people, how to make people move people so that they will um, act um, in, in, a, in a fashion that, is, that works and in a positive fashion, a constructive fashion, and that will produce results from a conference like this that could otherwise simply be a whole host of vague platitudes and no, no, basically no follow-through. So what's critical to her is finding a document that's important, that's significant, that can be implemented, and then finding the people who are prepared to do that. David Adelman, thank you. Thanks for having me. David Andelman, a former New York Times and CBS News correspondent, served seven and a half years as editor-publisher of World Policy Journal and is now editor emeritus. His conversation with France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, Ségolène Royal, is translated from the French in the fall 2015 food fight issue of World Policy Journal, headlined, Feeding the World. Also featured in the new fall issues food fight section, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on cuisine controversy and nationalism. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the Syrian conflict. For Syrians there, those fleeing, the U.S., Russia, the region, and beyond. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>